Welcome to episode 57 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Buddy Pegs, a family adventure media company celebrating cycling. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash buddy to learn more. Hey everybody, I'm Stephen Abrams, your host. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. My guest today is Fran Van Houten, Wonder Woman without a suit. She travels around the country, she's full of energy and sizzle, and after leaving conversations with Fran, I always leave thinking about what I can do better. Fran will share with us how she transitioned into the world of being a consultant for businesses and how moving to Jackson Hole helped her find the work she's in now. Fran has a realistic view on life and how to approach situations and conversations. She's a prolific reader, which introduces her to thoughts and ideas which can be applied to Fran's consulting business. If you ever wonder how you can be a better listener, Fran will share some fabulous insight with us today, which will be helpful. Fran, when you accepted my invitation to be a guest on the podcast, I had to give myself a high five because there was nobody in the office because having some of your time is very special. I appreciate you being here today. The honor and privilege is all mine, Stefan, so I appreciate it. Fran, let's start off with your connection to Jackson Hole. What is it and how did it begin? So it started in the fall of 1997. It probably started a few months before that, um, but we moved here in the fall of 1997, which now feels like so long ago. Like I cannot believe that it's been that long. And my husband at the time had come out originally fishing and ended up in the course of that fishing trip getting interviewed to be the town administrator. Okay. And so what brought us out was his job. But what was fascinating was that that whole transition from New Hampshire to Jackson was effortless. It you would, I would have never thought that, you know, transitioning to careers, transitioning 2,000 miles west, at the time, two dogs would have been as easy as it was. And Michael's fit in the Valley was abundantly clear. He was a sportsman, an angler, liked to hike and camp. Like, like his, his affinity to the community like was kind of a no brainer, but, but my experience was equally easy and I had no explanation for it. (laughs) And so, um, it was, it was a little crazy, but it felt like the Valley had something in store for me and what evolved, which was really fascinating is I never would have found this work if I had, if we hadn't moved to Jackson. And this is really my life's work. Like, this is why I was put on the planet to do the work I do. And so I attribute all of that to being in Jackson. That's a a big statement. And how long did it take you to realize that what you're doing now is your life's work? This is what you're meant to be on the earth for. Well, let's see. 
I was sort of, I was sort of in transition anyway, like the work I was doing at the time wasn't really resonating for me. At the time I was working at the hospital in the marketing and fundraising department and was never really like, never really found my footing, was never really that good at it. It, it, it always felt like work. And then through um, some events that happened in my family, uh, I had given my notice and had to attend to a couple of things that were emergencies. And in that moment, in that time, in those few months, you know, I realized how short life was, right? So in coming out of that and figuring out what my next chapter would be, I, I, I just sort of had the sense that, I just had the sense that maybe like to do focus group moderation or something like that would be interesting. So I took a class in facilitation in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts um, from a firm that is really well, well known for their facilitation training their facilitation work. And um, it just, it like just, I just resonated. It just, it just hit me. And I wasn't good at it at all, but I completely got it and intended to apply it in different ways. But then as I started to sort of pay more attention to what was happening in Jackson, I realized that in Jackson, facilitation really is a career. Like it's a cottage industry. And, and that's the difference. Like, you know, living in New Hampshire, you know, what is it? What was it? Like 90 miles north of Boston or whatever. Like I would have looked for jobs in the paper and probably could have found a bunch of jobs that would be perfectly fine for me, but not really my calling. And in many respects, those jobs in the paper may have been like distractions, but being in Jackson, right, where you're not necessarily going to find your career in the paper, I had to create it. And that turns out to have been the right path for me. I'll, I'll share an interesting tidbit, which was really kind of crazy how the universe speaks to you. After I had taken this, this class in Boston, this you know, week-long training, and was getting my feet wet in facilitation, I, I'm sort of a collector of books, right? Like I probably have every book I've owned since college. Like it's a bit of an issue. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, whole, there's therapy attached to that, I'm sure, somewhere. <laughs> But I pulled down this book that I had had for years, and it was James Adams' um, conceptual blockbusting. And it was like about how to come up with creative ideas and all of that. And I had purchased this book in probably 1987 at a time, another time when I was in transition. And it had all these great like facilitation tools in it. So I was like, oh, let me just noodle with this. And you know, I was doing that over a cup of tea and I'm one who like writes and highlights in my books and in the margins a lot. And I flipped to a page and I un had underlined in 1987 that I needed to check out this company, right? That was the company that taught me facilitation. No kidding. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Huh. And so it was like one of those things where if in 97, I had been in a place or yeah, in 87, rather, um, where I'd highlighted that. And if 87, I had been in a place to um, recognize that, I, I might have done that then and gotten into the work sooner. You know, I could have also not been ready for it and would have squandered that opportunity. But wasn't that, isn't it interesting that like about maybe a month after I came back from Boston and being trained in this, um, the universe was sort of giving me a green light to say, yeah, that's part of it. Fascinating. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And so you refer to yourself 
now as a facilitator. That's your business. Uh, yep. And yep. what's what's the name of your business? I do business um, under the moniker Rainmaker Coaching LLC. Okay. I like what you said when you took that class that you got it, but you weren't good at it. Oh God, no. And but did you still do it? Did you still practice it? Oh well, yeah, like completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, now it's what you know, twenty something years later. And I have the privilege of working all over the country, country in, in really cool situations, um, using using those tools. And and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people who would argue that I'm still not very good at it. Um, <laughs> no, inc including me. You know, it's one of those it's one of those disciplines where it's definitely a practice. Mm -hmm. And so you know, every group at every moment of time is still a tightrope for me. Like it's still unexplored territory. Like I never know when there's going to be a plot twist. So part of what is life-giving for me in this is kind of always feeling like a beginner. That's great. Yeah. Now in your realm of work, and I know for me, just being in business, I, I look at it as every day is a, a new experience and it's always a learning experience. Would you, wouldn't you say that in any um, industry out there that to truly be successful and, and move forward in life, we have to look at, we always have to um, make improvements and continue educating ourselves in our, in our world, in our realm of what we work in? Yes, I agree with you in that. I also take it from a slightly, maybe a slightly different frame. I think it okay. ends up in the same place, but I think I take it from a slightly different frame. There's a body of work done by a woman whose name is um, Julia Cameron. Her probably seminal work is a book called The Artist's Way. And it's more of a book that you do than a book that you read. But the whole concept behind it is, is, is work to recover your innate creativity. And... I am a big believer that our professional lives, our lives in general, mine just happens to be mostly grounded in our professional life, are really creative pursuits. And so when, we, when she was talking about you know, recovering your creativity and what sparks you and how to keep that alive, my work was definitely in sort of that professional realm around that, where certainly others could use that same frame to be you know, musicians or, or graphic artists or other folks. So while you speak of it um, from a leadership lens, which I think is great, um, and, I, and I agree with you, I am really approaching it from a creative pursuit perspective and from sort of a self-expression perspective. And that always sort of makes it feel a bit like play as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. That book was life-changing for me. It's still, it's still something I, I hold close to my heart. And years after, I had the privilege of um, taking a five-day small group workshop. There are only five of us. So almost like retreat-like with somebody that turned out to be the co-author to those works. And so it was nice to take a deep dive into that. Um, yeah, really meaningful. You've had some really interesting and fascinating experiences of throughout your life of things that you've gotten to do. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly been good for me. <laughs> I'm glad. 
Yeah, I'm not a huge risk taker. You're probably never going to see me on the top of the grand or jumping out of a plane. But for me, it's certainly been areas of growth. Well, I think you are a risk taker. It's just in different def- defined in different ways okay. and, and different actions. Look at what you did when you left working at the hospital. You took the risk of going through that facilitator course. Yep. And you also took the risk saying, I'm not great at it. I got to get better at it, but I'm going to put myself out there and, and make this work and, yeah. and do it uh, yeah. so I can help other people. Yeah. And give me a definition of what is a facilitator? I know it's, it's so hard and, and it's so jargony and I, I haven't, I still don't have my elevator speech down on this. So, you know, broadly to facilitate means to make it easier. Um, kind of my smarty pants up um, answer to that question is that um, I help people play, play nice together. Um, but really more broadly, you know, I help, I help groups and teams find alignment and sort of work in a common direction. And so that's probably the, the part that's the most re- rewarding for me is to take, you know, diverse groups, teams, whatever it is, and, 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 and balance it and do the chiropractic on it so that they're finding alignment and they're heading in the direction um, of achieving the goals that they want. And that's why it's kind of rainmaker coaching with the idea of, you know, rainmaker, whether it's making money or pennies from heaven or whatever your aspirations are. And, and my role is definitely that as a coach. I'm not coming in sort of telling you what you need to do. It's much more, let me ask the relevant questions, do some relevant work for you to find sort of the brilliance that resides in the team. Okay. I like that. You're not coming in to tell people what to do. You're, yeah. you're looking for the team to really pull it out of them, extract that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I'm doing some specialized work now, some specialized training now, and it really is resonating with me because it's, it's kind of game changing in the way you look at it. But part of what I like is looking at things from a systems perspective. Um, This probably has some roots in my early um, education. And so it's not only looking at the individuals on the team, but to look at the team as an entity unto itself. So, you know, there's you and then there's your wife and together you're a couple and including your sons, now you're a family. And the family has got an identity that's separate, separate from you or your wife or your children. It's, it's its own entity. And so in my work, I'm trying to come more from more and more from that lens to say what's the brilliance and the creativity and the resourcefulness that the system brings um, to the situation. It's definitely a little bit of like a big paradigm shift. But it raises different questions and you can sort of see where's the system trying to go. So that's a little bit of a, a twist on my work. But yeah, I'm not bringing the, I'm not bringing the you should do model. I'm bringing um, what comes next model and inviting that kind of conversation. What does it look like when these groups that you're facilitating grasp the concept and the process that you put them through? What's the aha aha moment look like? Oh, that's a fantastic question. It, um, well, it's interesting. Sometimes it's uh, a struggle. 
sort of that, that transition because participants in the meetings office, often in service to the group believe that they know what's best. And so they're trying to sort of push or nudge the process in a particular direction. And often it's not the direction that's got resonance. So they keep pushing and, and, the, and the system isn't responding in that, in that direction. Um, I was working with a team though this week and we did a couple of illustrations. And in fact, what we did in the meeting is we set a chair and we labeled the chair, the system. So that, that we could, we didn't lose track of the fact that everybody sort of made up this, this entity. And at one point, I asked the question, what does the system want? And what was interesting was somebody just in, instinctively answered, this system wants visibility. And when they said that, there was kind of a light bulb that went over people's heads because they started to realize that the system had been driven by this external demand and that that was actually causing them a great deal of trouble and that what they probably needed to do was reorganize the system a little bit so that it wasn't being pulled in this direction that for them as individuals had become so weighty. It didn't even mean that they had to see the system. It just meant by asking a different question, they got a different insight. Does that make sense? It feels like a lot of words that maybe aren't really connecting. It, it does make sense for me. Okay. Uh, it, it does. And I'm sure those people who are listening today, it will uh, resonate with them. And the great thing is they can just rewind that a little bit and listen to it again. <laughs> Good for them. I'm not sure I'm going to do that and want to hear myself in that situation. <laughs> and so you said that you travel the country to help companies, profit, nonprofit organizations go through this change process? Yeah. I, um, a lot of my work is actually with federal agencies. So I have the privilege in working in like some of the most special places um, around the world around the country. Um, I've done a little bit in Paris. Um, so I often want to change my voicemail to say the world headquarters of mm -hmm. Rainmaker Coaching. So I, I've done a, a fair amount of that. I do a fair amount of nonprofit work, both in the Valley and also in Las Vegas, where I, I have some personal interest. And a, a growing amount of work in the world of academe. So a little bit at sort of a university, a university level. I'm, I'm definitely interested in doing more corporate stuff. And part of this training and investment in my professional development that I'm doing is to look at how to apply that in corporate teams, particularly senior executive teams, um, because I think that system component becomes really, really important uh, there. I'm a, I also have an interest in sort of how to apply emotional intelligence in some of this work. And so it feels a little bit professionally that I'm in transition, sort of pulling in sort of different, different ingredients that are all historically relevant to my work, but add a little spice. And it's uh, a little bit of a chemistry experiment to see what might emerge out of all of that. I, I love it. You're, you're getting out there. Yeah, and, and I was just making a, a note, so I don't forget to ask you a question while you're talking, um, because I have two questions for you. Yeah, no problem. And my first question is, are there signals that an organization would see, which would let them know that they, it would be good for them to have a facilitator for a particular instance? 
Yeah. So I often get pulled in when um, there's conflict, quote unquote. So when relationships are strained or there's a high degree of frustration. And it's interesting, while earlier in my professional practice, I kind of would feel like I was coming in and acting like a mediator. What I have matured into understanding is conflict is just a sign that something else is trying to emerge. Mm. And when you can embrace it as the organic process that it is, that it's kind of like a birthing process, right? Something else is trying to exist. And that conflict is really maybe a signal that the current confines of, of the system, we're bumping up against those. That is really kind of a cool process and it sort of normalizes everybody's experience in there. It's not that somebody's blamed for the situation, that there may be some unpopular voices, you know, expressing things in the system, but those are elements of the system, like they're there. And so it may just be that an individual or somebody in a certain role has embraced that responsibility to sort of speak that voice of the system. And one of the, I think, areas where we go astray, but it's, it's, it's so human and it's very natural, is we attribute it to an individual. Hmm. So, so somebody ends up with a target on their back. And that, like, we, we want to try to catch it before that happens. Like, we, let's recognize that the system isn't firing on all cylinders and there's some underground conflict, but to try to catch it before it becomes sort of personalized but yeah, that's a long answer to your short question, which is that's often the time when people say, maybe we need to bring in a neutral from the outside. And, mm-hmm. and that would be someone like me. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that. It's, it's very much not identifying an individual that could be causing the change or the disruption. And, and that's important because you don't want to single anybody out. I know, but it, it's so, it's, there's such a, a very sort of natural dynamic. Like when you don't understand and you mm-hmm. somehow would attach it to this person, you sort of put that, that blame there. And, the, and then that opens up a whole pattern of really dysfunctional behaviors, which yeah. often just end up the team ending up sort of exactly where they didn't want to go. Why, why is it that we go in that direction? Well, I think there's a number of patterns that come into play. Um, One is that sort of for our own protection, um, everybody believes in their own correctness, Hmm. right? So when they sort of believe something to be true or the narrative they tell themselves about someone or something, that can be a little hard to disrupt. So um, I was just distracted thinking about how, how I often do that in groups. But so that's, that's one of the things that comes into play. You know, the other thing is just sort of the neuroscience behind things and that um, seeing things as threats has been centered to our survival. And so our brains are sort of prepared to see things as threats. And that often underserves us, like our, our sort of still primal nature and our limbic system and how our brains respond are really not sophisticated enough to match the sophistication of the world. And so as individuals, we kind of need to learn a new skill set in terms of how to question our assumptions, how to be aware of our visceral reactions that may be in response to threat, but then to step back and to say, 
am I really under threat? Or if I'm under threat, what degree of threat? You know, our, our limbic system really only responds as um, to like, it's either zero or like life-saving, right? Where uh, a threat to my ego or, you know, somebody pushing back saying, I disagree with you, or I think you might be incorrect in this, you know, in our brain sort of has the same response as about to be hit by a car. And so to be, uh, to have that sort of mindfulness and that awareness and to make different choices. And then, you know, that happens in the individual. And then when you're brought into a team situation, um, you know, some dysfunctional behaviors that are really natural, but that we see in teams. And a lot of this is rooted in John Gottman's work, like, like somebody treats me with contempt, right? They treat me with disrespect and they marginalize me. So my response to them may be, something like stonewalling, which is like, okay, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to share my data with you. I'm not going to hang out with you. And so now that's become kind of this escalated situation, right? That that pattern gets into place and we don't see it. Or if we see it, we haven't figured out a way to make it discussable. And then the whole team gets involved because now I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull people into that because if the conflict's with you, well, I'm going to maybe vent to somebody else, but it's not really venting. It's more like trying to bring in an accomplice, right? And so now this escalation, which maybe started in my brain, behaviorally just involved a bigger group. And that's where if we can see it as something's trying to emerge, it's okay that something doesn't work, but let's figure out the way to find the alignment where we can get our needs met. Mm-hmm. And, and do it in a way that's not at the expense of somebody else or more broadly, the team or organization. Well said. Well said. Fran, we're going to take a quick break from a word from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Do you know what a freedom machine is? Do you remember the enjoyment and confidence riding a bike gave you? When was the last time you rode your bike? Well, the fun folks over at Buddy Pegs Media can answer all of those questions. They are building children's confidence and connecting families in this digital age through books, podcasts, and learn-to-ride classes. The Buddy Pegs family are creating healthier lifestyles for families and helping children be more successful through the power of the bicycle. Check them out today at thejacksonholeconnection.com slash buddy. Fran, you're talking about the dynamics of the team and what can happen which might really give signals to bring somebody in your role with your expertise into an organization. And you were talking about how we as people can build up these ideas. We have these thoughts in our minds and then without having the right skills, we don't know what to do with them. So then they can manifest and come out into actions, which could really not be beneficial to the organization, to the system. Right. Is there a tool that you offer to people? So when an example that I might relate that to is if you're in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you want to get so enraged at that person that cut you off. But if we had this tool in our toolbox that would really calm us down and say, you know what, maybe they didn't see us. I've done that before, or maybe there's an emergency. Yeah. And let's not jump to conclusions. What what type of tool could somebody use in in this instance to help bring them back, ground them a little bit? Yeah. So a couple of things. 
So one is exactly what you just said, and I'll, I'll come into that from a sort of more academic perspective. But you know, the power of uh, the power of a deep breath, you know, the the power of diaphragmatic breathing, and all of that actually has um, great neuroscience behind it in terms of like that it does calm that sort of fight or flight response, and so just sort of having that at the ready is is so great. Um, sort of oxygenating your brain, um, so important. But the pattern that you described is actually something that's leaned on a lot in my work, and it's called the ladder of inference. And the scholar behind this is Chris Argerus from, um, I think he was originally from Harvard. It's gotten a lot of traction in Peter Senge's work, so he's attributed um, the credit a lot, but it really is rooted in um, Ardurus's work. And the concept is if, is if you um, think of a, a ladder, like we're going to paint the house, at the bottom rung of that ladder is data that's related to the situation. So it, there's no interpretation attached to it, it's purely data. So in your sort of road rage situation, you know, the data would be that at a certain date, at a certain time, at a certain intersection, right? Purely neutral, you know, blue car with license plate XYZ got into the same lane as red car XYZ, right? And it's data that's really at the level of like a videotape. There's no interpretation, purely just a data set. And that's at that first rung of the ladder. But then um, what we do as people, and I would argue it's the same process that the elk on the horizon uses to determine whether I'm a hiker or a hunter, right? It, it, it says, okay, I see this, now how do I interpret it? So we take the data and then we make some assumptions about the data and then have some beliefs about it and then some conclusions. And then at the top of the rung, we, we take some actions on it. And what happens is our brains work so quickly that we take in this data set and we automatically jump to judgment or assumption or some conclusions about it. Because in many respects, that's what's life-saving for us, right? Think of that elk. It doesn't want to wait around to figure out if I'm a hunter. It sees me and it's in its best interest, at least in the moment, to um, take a defensive action. So we climb that ladder without even realizing it. And then here's the additional dimension that becomes troublesome. Let's say that you and I work together and this situation was me cutting you off on the road, right? So at the next day or something, let's say we're gonna have a meeting and I arrive 15 minutes late. And maybe I, you sent me an email and I'm slow to respond, right? What starts to happen is whatever conclusion you might have reached or inferred during our road situation now maybe get extended to those behaviors. So you might think, ah, she's a legend in her own mind. She wanted to get there first, nothing else matters, right? So now I'm late to a meeting, the meeting with us. And now that may be reinforcing that impression that it's all about me and not about you, right? And so what happens at the top of that ladder of inference is we select the data that reinforces our conclusions, right? And so now we've got basically confirmation bias. And so we see this in organizations all the time. Like when I um, work with teams, like it's like, all right, what situation sort of triggered this? And then what's the reinforcing narrative? 
And so the example that you gave where you said, I'm cut off in traffic, maybe that person's late to work, is exactly the pattern of de-escalation. We go back to the data and we say, at such and such an intersection, at such and such a time, this happened. How else could I interpret it, right? And so walking down that ladder of inference becomes really important. And we can do it for ourselves, but often we're in such an emotional state that it's a little hard to um, get there sometimes. And here's where, you know, that example I said before, where like we might pull in our colleagues and we often do it to vent and in theory to de-escalate, but really what we're looking for is to get somebody on our side. What I would love is for everybody to be taught this, this model so that you know, when I come to somebody and I want to complain about you or you want to complain about me, that third person, because we're now triangulating, which is really kind of, it was really dysfunctional in an organization, that third person could maybe help walk us down that ladder of inference and say to you, yeah, I get that you see Fran in this frame, but what were the data that had you draw that conclusion? How else might those data be interpreted? And how could you check to see if your interpretation is right? Because just because you've climbed that ladder of inference doesn't mean your interpretations are wrong. It means that they're untested. So it might be all about me, right? And that may be true. Or it could be that I detected a problem in my car and needed to get out of the high speed lane for everybody's safety. It could be that that same car is still having trouble and resulted in me being 15 minutes late, right? Um, but we don't know until we ask. Mm-hmm. So, wow, Big. long answer, short question. It's it's all right. It's it's great that it's such a uh, it's a long, thorough uh, answer, very very detailed and and I I know helpful for me, okay. uh, and and I I'm sure it'll be helpful for the for the listeners as well and. And I think what I, I, I feel that you mentioned something earlier as well, which was one of my questions, my, my next questions that really leads into what you're talking about here. And you talked about how you're doing, uh, working on emotional intelligence. Right. And I, for me, it's all connected, uh, what you just referred to and then mm-hmm. emotional intelligence. So tell me when you say that you want to start doing some work with emotional intelligence, what, what does that mean? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I had the privilege of being included in as a meta coach for the Dan Goleman EI um, coaching program that um, has just started in the last couple of years. So Daniel Goleman really popularized the idea of emotional intelligence. So he sort of advanced sort of that language and has just uh, launched in collaboration with a bunch of people uh, a coaching program. And so one of the things we know about emotional intelligence through Dan's work and others at UNH and at Yale is how game-changing that skill set is for leaders. And I think that on the surface, it sort of seems like you're either born with it or you're not. And it turns out emotional intelligence is highly trainable. You can learn those skills. And I would argue that it's really sort of a lifelong learning. Um, and some people may come with an affinity for it, but we can, we can learn a lot. You know, so much of it starts by being more self-aware, um, self-aware in terms of 
what we're experiencing in our bodies, like those deep breaths that we talk about, or to recognize where we feel anxiety or anger or other strong reactions sort of somatically, you know, interoception within our body. And then to become more aware and looking at, you know, what are the impacts that my behaviors or my attitudes bring to the situation? Am I getting the results that I had anticipated or wanted? You know, in, in Goldman's model for emotional intelligence, it, it's kind of a two by two matrix and it's self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, social management. So there's the personal sort of awareness and choices that we make. And then it's that social external lens of awareness. And then what choices do we make in that? And in that first one of self-awareness and um, self-management, so much of that is rooted in empathy. And that really is sort of the, the common denominator around which a lot of things, on which a lot of things can be built. So true. So true. And I hear that you do a, a lot of training, not just for the clients that you work with, but for yourself. You're yeah. doing continual improvement of your work time or the time that, that you consider work. How much is that, of that is going back and investing in yourself so you can then go back and benefit your clients, take that information that you learn? So I think that there's, um, I think there's a couple of elements to it. One is the training that is like fueling for me, right? That it's recharging, it's growing, it's, it's all of that. And I'd say that is like a more scheduled investment and often sort of a higher, you know, dollar investment. But there's also the ongoing training of refreshing. And so I, I've been doing this work now for, you know, over 20 years, which is, again, crazy for me to say. And even though a lot of the work may be um, similar to other situations I've been, like, I love pulling that book from the shelf that I haven't touched in a while to like refresh. Like, I don't want to just have the same tools every day because that's boring for me. And so there's that as like, I would say that I am learning every single day because a client brings me in and it may be something that on the surface feels familiar, but I'm going to be like, let me look at it from this lens. Like, let me look at it from emotional intelligence lens, or let me look at it from another, from another perspective and see how I can sort of shake things up and keep it, keep it fun for me as well. So there's that, which I would say is honestly, almost every day, you know, I travel a lot and all of my audible books, you know, audio format and all of my Kindle books are all professional development stuff so that I can just get to a chapter and like just noodle on that from a different lens. So that's just part of the nature of how I work. And then these bigger investments in training. Well, I would say over the last three years, I have probably invested, I would probably say close to a month a year. Um, so four weeks in the course of a year to sort of dedicated, deep dive, high quality, kind of world-class training experiences. Congratulations. Yeah. And you must read what, two, three books a month, four? 
I would say that I am a skimmer. Okay. I am hunting on what I need at the moment. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going into a client situation, I will be like, oh, I could look at it from these different author perspectives or these scholar perspectives. So I will sort of try to dig into it that way. Mm -hmm. So I could probably say that I don't know that I read books. I like pluck from them. And if we were to look at my um, professional trajectory, I've probably read some of those read some of those books like a dozen times, but all in just plucking kind of what's relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the month that you take that you take to invest and do a deep dive in, in yourself is is that's over the course of the year. It's not as though that you're just taking off a month. Hey, I'm unplugging for a month but you are investing that amount equivalent amount of time in yourself so you can figure out what you're doing and where you're going. Yeah. I think that the last few years I've been particularly lucky that a, I've been able to do the schedule alignment and have had that extra resources to make those kinds of investments. So I feel like I've been particularly blessed. And yes, it's not a, a taking a month off, you know, it's going to a national conference. It's, you know, doing those things. And fortunately, a lot of times um, they involve the weekend, so they don't necessarily take me out of the sort of billable time flow. This, this, what I'm enrolled in right now in terms of professional development required a hundred hours of coursework before I could even apply to the program. And now the program is, you know, two hours on the Zoom, on Zoom every Wednesday with people from around the world and then a bunch of independent work and then a residential coming up this fall. And that's going to be happening through May. So, you know, I don't know what the equivalent hours are there but it feels, it certainly feels substantive and it's hugely impactful for me. And so I think that, I think a minimum for me of uh, a, a week of dedicated learning is kind of what I need to keep, to, to stay restored. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that because it's so important. And, and I look at, do I give myself enough opportunity and time okay to restore and rejuvenate and do some reflection. Yeah. Um, I know I don't, I know I can be better at it. You know, it's interesting though, Stefan, because um, I work when uh, I think there's different levels of reflection and, and different richness there. But one of the common things that I work with my clients on is just sort of that nature of establishing a climate of feedback and continuous improvement. And like one of the really simple tools can be something that's called a plus delta. And the plus delta is just basically what in, let's say this interview format, right? What worked well that we would do again or that you would do again or that I would do again. And then on our next one, what would we change or upgrade to make it even better? Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes we think of that reflection and that continuous learning as needing to be like such a big lift that it feels like it gets in the way. But I find in the situations that I'm in, high stakes and low stakes, it can be just a simple like five minute reflection that's like, what about this worked well and what I do again? And what would I change or upgrade to, to 
have it be better? Um, and I think just asking that question as a habit sort of leads itself to that continuous growth and that continuous improvement. Thank you. Yeah. Great insight and certainly something for me to work on. I do have a journal which outlines something. What did you do that worked out very well and what right. can you do better um, yeah. to continue your goals? Yeah. Um, and working on getting better and committed to doing that daily versus maybe once a week. <laughs> but but finding here's, the time. I totally get that. But yeah. here's the thing is, you know, um, again, I probably am leaning on my engineering background a little bit too much on this, but like we're all victims of entropy. You know, mm -hmm. we always, the whole world sort of operates to the, the lowest level of energy. So I think sometimes people view those habits of like wanting to start something and then it diminishing as like some kind of like character flaw or something. So like it's physics, all right? We, we can't not be affected by physics. And so what you're saying, what, what the system needs is a boost of energy, like a booster shot to be like, okay, I've lost my momentum on that. I need to boost that up. And maybe this is just to make my approach to the life, to life um, easier for me to digest. But I'm a big believer in let's not make things bigger than they need to be. Like if you just need five minutes of reflection to say this worked well and I want to congratulate myself or others and I want to improve in these ways. You know, life is, life is hard enough um, in so many areas that are plot twists and things we can't control. If we can just take you know, an extended time after we turn off NPR in a car to, to, to exhale, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, okay, that just made a difference, even if it doesn't seem like it was a heavy lift. I think I just got the quote of the month there, friend. Oh yeah? What's that? Let's not make things bigger than they need to be. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Fran, if people wanted to reach out to you, what is a good method for them to connect with you? Um, so email is always the best only because I'm so busy face-to-face -face with clients that I often am not in a position to answer my phone, although texting or trying by phone is fine. So my website is rainmakercoaching.com and that's probably the easiest way. I, I, there's a page on there that connects us. Perfect. I love it. And if there's two books, you've mentioned a few books today. Are there two books that you would say to move the needle forward in life? These are two books that you should pick up today. Well, from a business perspective, there's a handful of books that I wish I had written. Mm -hmm. And so I'll pull <laughs> up, right? Yep. Um, and so um, the two that I think are really valuable and are really fun reads is one is called Fierce Conversations and Fierce being like robust. And the author is Susan Scott. And actually it's, they're great on audio, like she's funny. So those are, those include some skill sets that I think everybody benefits from having. The other book I would probably suggest is a book called Switch, and it's by um, two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. And I think the subtitle is How to Make Change When Change is Hard. And um, it's, it's entertaining, it's illustrative, um, 
And so those are two of the handful of books that I wish I'd written. And I think they're great resources. Well, I do look forward to the time that your book comes out. Yeah. And <laughs> because you have some awesome information, knowledge, and experience. Thank you. And I thank you for what you're doing because you're making a, a great impact on people's lives in a very positive, constructive, and helpful way. And um, it's an honor to have you here today. And I've learned so much in this short period of time and a lot for me to reflect on for sure. Well, Stefan, um, truly an honor. I so appreciate what you're doing like for you and for the community. It's fun. I feel so privileged to be um, included here. And let me be clear, all of the work that I do is I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So I appreciate your kind words about my work, but it is rooted in the good work that has happened for a long, long time. And to, to work in the sphere of those people is certainly humbling for me. So, but this is really fun. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Fran. To learn more about Fran and her consulting business, Rainmaker Coaching, please visit my website at jacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 57. I do love hearing from my listeners and subscribers. So if you have feedback or suggestions, send me an email to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. Please remember to visit buddypegs.com and download their podcast. My kids love it. I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Mori, and my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing guru, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.